Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Great. We've got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. I mean, some news and then some the best news ever, the resurrection. Oh my gosh, Derek. Yeah, you totally just went there. It is the best news ever. Look at us. Look at you, Derek. All the wordplay. I love it. So uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the news some. Across the Mormon blogosphere slash Mormon internet, you've probably seen uh, news about this survey. The title of the article is basically what the LDS Church wants to know from young adult Mormons. Uh, Derek, did you have any initial responses when you saw the questions that were on this survey and when you saw, the? I mean, I guess the fact that the church even put this thing out? Yeah, two things. I think... It gives us a signal from the leadership about how revelation actually works. You've got to do your homework. Like, yeah. people say, uh, I forgot what that phrase is. It's like, okay. inspiration is 90% preparation. Well, I think it's inspiration is 90% perspiration. you got to put in the work yes. to get the results. Like, if you don't bring the right questions to the Lord, if you don't, aren't in a position line upon line to get the new thing, if you're not prepared, like it's not going to happen. So, um, so I think this is this is good. Like the brethren seem to be interested in assessing where young people are on some controversial issues, including LGBTs, race, yeah. other yeah. things, and they've surveyed. Like, does our church's position make you uncomfortable on these things? Like mm-hmm. that is something that they need to know and they need to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if they spent like half a day on the internet, they will know. They would already know that. But say, um, like, they wanted the to, they wanted to have some rigorous like sociological data to back up exactly what's going on. And mm-hmm. so, what do you think? What was your reaction? I was a bit curious initially, just because so many people were sharing it. But uh, the first thing that came to my head was uh, Jana Reese's book, "The Next Mormons." And I have it on pretty good authority that this survey that the church is conducting is kind of a response to that. Now, I don't know how much people know about, we, we, we've spoken about it briefly on one of our episodes, but if you are not too familiar, Jenna Reese wrote a book a little, like sometime last year, I think it was, but it's called The Next Mormons, and it was a pretty hard scientific and social commentary about church membership today. Now, the studies that she cites in her book are available for free online, but uh, some of the more relevant findings, as implied by the title of the book, are about how millennials and Gen Z are only staying active at about half the rate of previous generations, which is obviously a problem for the church. Oh, and uh, something else that I learned is there's also only about a one, there's only about one active man for every three active women. So the church wants to combat these findings from what I can tell. And they'll likely do this by perhaps skewing their respondents to be mostly white U S born members of the church who are active. Now this isn't really anything new. This type of skewing has been, you know, going on for a while. Anybody who's been seeing every conference when they talk about membership numbers, only about 30 to 40% of the, however many, what, 16, 17 million membership is active at any given time. So yeah, we're, we're growing on paper technically in select parts of the world. And uh, we have to consider that part of the reason the church is putting this out maybe an effort to improve what they may be doing or what they could be doing but we also have to acknowledge that the church is a business it is an institution and uh, they probably want to put something out that is going to make them look a little bit better because actually receiving honest feedback from former members and less active members would mean addressing actual structural issues like what you just talked about, Derek, LGBTQ issues, uh, race issues, gender equality. So I'm, I'm not overall too optimistic about this because it's not the, the first time the church has done something like this and also not been forthright about the answers or their findings. But uh, I do have a little bit of hope for what this might mean and what this could do. It's been a while since we've had something like this. I just hope that we actually do 
good and right by the results that we receive if the church is, in fact, not going to skew their respondents. You know what's really interesting is my understanding is that a number of changes, especially in the temple, have come as the result of the brethren being made aware of people's problems with certain things. Like right. the 1990 changes around the penalties, uh, and then there's been other changes to the washing and anointing to make it more comfortable along the way. Then in, in 2000, I think it was the beginning of 2019, we had some changes that are in the direction of being more inclusive of women in the uh -huh. temple. And I mm -hmm. think all of these were done based on surveys or other ways of assessing where the people, where they just, uh, the average people are mm. on these issues. And then they made these changes. So bottom-up revelation or bottom-up changes, these things work. We get into it every now and again with people who are of the opinion that people on the ground should not be counseling the brethren or people on the ground shouldn't be complaining or people on the ground should not be supposing to know better than the brethren what the church may need to do by certain groups of people. But, you know, what we're talking about right now is a biblical principle. It's, it's both got ancient and latter-day precedent that the church, the leaders got to listen to the people that are on the ground in the thick of all this stuff in order to shape themselves to be a better church. So that may look different to different people. I don't know. Maybe people are generally uncomfortable with this idea that while they don't want to counsel the brethren or they don't want to complain about anything, that other people shouldn't do it as well. I mean, you and I, Derek, we see this, we've seen this a bunch with people who... Right kind of weaponize their marginalized identities to keep others marginalized, like, uh, you know, the Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever. I, I don't know how to say Did that you know that name. he's ex-gay now? No. Yeah, he's claiming to be ex-gay. No, bro. Are you serious? I read it on the internet, so it might be it true. It must be true. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. But th this... Sorry, this is just all to say that uh, there, there is a purpose in having people that are not in the upper echelons of church leadership opine on how things ought to be. That way things can get more comfortable for everybody and things can be better for everybody. So thanks for bringing that up, Derek. And I also just wanted to make sure I brought up that this idea of bottom-up revelation was also biblical. Yeah. And didn't we talk about this anyway when we were discussing the, uh, what was it, the Hiram Page revelations with, uh, and also the, yeah, 27 and 28 when we had Brittany mm -hmm. on, we were talking about how, about the law of common consent, this balance between this kind of uh, hierarchical and democratic ideal that makes sure that everybody gets heard, but that there's also an order to things. So yeah, I, I see the church making an attempt to do that to a degree with these surveys. And I think the thing about the survey, what it, the, probably the most important conclusion that the brethren should draw from this is the church is gonna change eventually. Like they're gonna be gone one or two generations later, it's gonna be pro-LGBT people running the church. They should see now that it's gonna change sometime. Like when this Absolutely. generation, when our generation is in the leadership, it's gonna be very different. You know, here's the thing that I would, um, people say, well, what would you ask the brethren? If you could ask them one question, what would you ask them? And here's what I would ask them. I said, what are you going to do now and how are you going to frame things now so that later on, you know, 40 years from now or whenever it is when the change happens, that the people in the future have to do less work throwing you under the bus? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Derek. How can we frame this to make sure there's less work or less throwing you under the bus in the future? That, yeah, that's a thought-provoking question, man. Anything else you want to say yeah. about the survey? Um, no, I'm just really curious where where that will go. I mean, some of it may not change policy, but it may change some branding. It may change how they frame things. It may change emphasis. I think. They could very easily do something like decriminalize uh, same-gender marriages by just saying, you know what, we're going to let same-gender married folks just stay in the pews and, and, uh, 
and we're just going to leave them alone and see what happens rather than trying to root out all of all of um the people in same gender relationships mm. same thing with trans people they might instead of actively persecuting trans people they might just we're just gonna be hands off and and see what happens yeah and i'll say because i don't think i've explicitly said this yet the very fact that they there's a public acknowledgement of their attempts to get the opinions and the feelings of younger members of the church I think that in and of itself can be celebrated because we don't mm-hmm. see that enough in the church. And given the status of how many Gen Zers and millennials are, you know, asking questions or leaving or, you know, just engaging less, I think it's just a good thing generally that the church is trying to hear them. And yeah. I think that can be I think that can be celebrated. So some, someone coming from the larger Christian world, I think I can pretty much say that the Jehovah's Witnesses wouldn't have done this survey. The Southern Baptists wouldn't have done this survey. Um, not the Southern Baptists, no. The, like, they would have just said, we don't need to know how, what people think of us. We don't need to know what our young people think about LGBT. In fact, they wouldn't even use the word LGBT. They would use the word sodomy. And so at least our church doesn't use that word anymore. At least they're saying LGBT, which I think is progress. Like the mm-hmm. the witnesses don't say LGBT. Um, so even just the framing and the fact that they're at least on a, a pastoral level of trying to take care of a people during a, during a time where we don't have all the things settled, it shows some amount of wisdom. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Shall we move on to the discussion on Easter, my friend? Yeah, let's talk about Easter. Let's talk about Easter. Before we get there, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. I wanted to add that there's a new member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Ah, yeah. We've I was going to wait holy, on that. Yeah, we've got the Holy Human a podcast with Katie and Serena. And yes. we've partnered with them before, but they're doing amazing work. Um, and what I love about these podcasts is we don't duplicate each other. We all are doing mm-hmm. great things mm-hmm. where, where it's needed. So make sure you check out them too. Yes, it is a real pleasure to have Holy Human on board with Dialogue Podcast Network. Like I'll just echo what Derek said. They're doing incredible work. And uh, if you haven't heard our interview with them from a couple weeks back, definitely encourage you to listen to that. It's just a pleasure talking to them. And I'm just generally joyed anytime there are people doing this work of centering uh, people that don't typically get a voice in the message of the restored gospel. So it's just great to have, you know, another perspective in there and, uh, you know, to be part of dialogue. Anyway. Right. And I learned something from every one of their episodes. It's, oh, of course. It's really yes. great. In the Come Follow Me book this uh, week, there is a lesson on Easter. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So we're not going to be in, or at least any sequential sections of uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. We'll just be, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'll be moving around a little bit in the Doctrine and Covenants since the Come Follow Me manual does provide resources primarily in the Doctrine and Covenants to have a discussion on Easter or a discussion on the resurrection of Christ. But uh, this will mostly just be a discussion on Easter period. So... With that, I came to my study this week with a couple of questions. Primarily, what has or what does the resurrection mean for us? And I I know that there's the standard things, like because Jesus was resurrected, we will all be resurrected too. It was the completion of the act of the atonement. Because Jesus was resurrected, all of us can be freed from sin and death. But I wanted to know, what does that mean for us right now? What does that mean for us in mortality? What does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? So I spent a lot of time thinking about that for myself personally, and also for my people, also for the church. 
Now, this particular week, I, I've gotten to talk to a few friends about their lives, and a lot of us are just going through it right now, just to put it plainly. Many of us aren't living the lives that we want to live personally or professionally. Two of my friends just this week were lamenting that things in their personal lives weren't going the way they had hoped, and another friend of mine, like me, was lamenting specifically about being a certain age and not having achieved some of the relatively arbitrary benchmarks of adult success. Many of us are also negatively affected by the inability to socialize as we wish because of COVID. COVID has even taken some of our loved ones away or has put some of us in other debilitating uh, circumstances. And still come this weekend, People will deal with a great deal of anxiety, perhaps wondering how the brethren might invalidate them this time. At least that's been the theme of general conference that I've noticed over the course of the last mm -hmm. decade or so. Mm -hmm. Well, now, I just want to say something yeah. real quick. You mentioned all these friends who have not, how did you say it, attained these markers of adulthood or something you should have done by whatever age you are? Yes, sir. I don't know what those are, but I can almost <laughs> predict that Jesus didn't do them either. Great point. Great point. Like, I don't know if it's marriage or if it's like Jesus didn't have a publication by the time he was 33. Like, whatever <laughs> your marker is, Jesus probably didn't do it either. It's funny you say that because literally the conversation I was having with this one particular friend, it was, I think it was marriage. Marriage was one and home ownership was another. And I'm just like, Fam, it's 2021, you're 26, and uh, we, we don't, <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's not to say that these aren't righteous desires, but Derek, I really like that you just straight up said, I don't know what those are. Like, and who are who is setting these rules? Who is creating mm -hmm. these benchmarks? Um, and that is a question that I regularly have to ask myself. Anytime I bring this up with anybody, they're asking that same question. Who says that you got to be published by this age? Who says you got to be married? Who says you got to have a home? Like who is putting these ideas of what it is to be a successful, happy adult into your head? And these are very, th these yeah. things can weigh people down if, uh, if they don't meet those definitions. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jesus wasn't a homeowner. He said, like, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Like, he mm -hmm. was, he had very little property. He depended on the generosity of others, especially the generosity mm -hmm. of women, if you look at Luke mm -hmm. chapter 8. Yes, and, sir. And uh, he was not a homeowner. Let me tell you something important about homeownership is that you can't say the word homeowner without saying homo. Oh, man. Walked right into the room. I was like, what is coming? What is coming? What is coming, Derek? And sure enough, there it is. <laughs> I was like, how is he going to work it in today? <laughs> okay, but I interrupted you where you were talking a little bit more about. Yeah, there are a lot. I mean, there are a lot more ways that things might not be working out for us. But the point I was trying to make is that hardship is part of our existence. Yet the resurrection can turn all of our suffering into something redemptive or put another way what is redemptive specifically is the faith that god snatches victory out of defeat that he snatches life from death that he snatches hope from despair as revealed in the proclamation of jesus resurrection now we may have talked about this last year but in considering the circumstances of christ's death which was a humiliating and brutal crucifixion at the hands of powerful men, Christ rising from the dead was a huge middle finger to the worst that the most powerful mm. on this earth could do to him. He turned the most humiliating, devastating, brutal, awful defeat into the most glorious triumph. He turned something ugly into something beautiful. He turned despair into hope he turned more specifically the cross into the resurrection he turned spiritual and physical death into immortality and eternal life that's the christ that we worship that is something that i thought a lot about in uh, preparing to talk about easter today if he can turn if he can turn the greatest affliction into the greatest consolation 
then should we not as his disciples be able to truly hope for a better world? Because he didn't just do this for himself. He did this for all of us. What Christ did in the resurrection is was a demonstration of a power that he can exercise in our own lives. Now, whoever needs to hear this, the resurrection bears testimony that Christ will not allow evil to triumph over good. He will not allow hurt to triumph over healing. I heard James Go- I heard James Cone say something along the lines of uh, at the center of our faith as Christians is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is also our reminder that though evil may triumph on Good Friday, he says, it must ultimately give way to the triumph of Easter. Let me say that again. Though evil may triumph on Good Friday, it must ultimately give way to the triumph of Easter. Close quote. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but one day that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Isn't that a whole bar? It is. Like, I love this juxtaposition of Caesar next to Christ or of Good Friday next to Easter, just basically letting us know that there is an impermanence of the ungodly, of the unjust, and the oppressive, but and also an inevitability of the godly, of the just, and of the liberating. I uh, want to turn to a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, and this is uh, section 63. We read, Yea, and blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth, when the Lord shall come and old things shall pass away and all things become new. They shall rise from the dead and shall not die after and shall receive an inheritance before the Lord in the holy city. So basically we're being told of this impermanence of death and this inevitability of becoming alive again, and not just that, receiving an inheritance of the Lord. On the other side of all this hardship that we might experience is not only going to be the opposite of the hardship, but there's going to be more. There's going to be great things on the other side of these hardships, Uh, things that are more than the awfulness that we experience because of the resurrection. And now, if I can move to another kind of doctrine-heavy section, uh, this is 88, we're told starting in verse 16 that the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul and the redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things in whose bosom it is decreed that the poor and the meek of the earth shall inherit it. Now, just to highlight what's being said in that verse, this highlights a promise found in the resurrection that, uh, that oppressed Christians have held on to for a long time. I know black Christians, at least, have held on to it for a long time. That in Christ, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, the captive are liberated. In Christ is the restoration of humanity to its wholeness. Christ's immortality was killed because of his threat to a system that maintained injustice. But he was resurrected as Lord, thereby making good God's promise to bring freedom to all who are weak and helpless. The resurrection then becomes a guarantee of this elevation of the station of the weak that was professed back in Isaiah, back in Mary's Magnificat, and uh, back in Christ's first sermon where he, of course, quotes himself in Isaiah. This is all an acknowledgement that Christ is going to fulfill his promise to dignify the undignified, the dispossessed, to free the captive, to deliver justice to the unjust. The resurrection is ultimately a promise that God will make right everything that is wrong with our existence, not just in the hereafter, but even in the here and now, he has the power to do that much. This is the hope 
this this hope from the resurrection this is what the early civil rights leaders held on to this is what early black christians held on to even in the midst of slavery and being denied personhood this is what current civil rights leaders hold on to this promise that all will be made right because of christ's resurrection you got any initial or or immediate thoughts about that yeah i mean that all a lot a lot of this makes sense but it only makes sense in light of the context of the first century political and uh, situation and also the situation of oppressed peoples today it reminds okay. me a lot of james cone's the cross and the lynching tree yes. where he says that the crucifixion was a lynching it was a yeah. public display meant to intimidate ordinary folks mm-hmm. to be afraid of the power of the empire Yes, That's sir. That's what it is. To the terror and intimidation is is the whole point of crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you've pointed out how it brings us power, it brings us hope, it brings us life when we contemplate the resurrection. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the uh, political context of the uh, resurrection? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I want to frame this by going back to a principle I talked about earlier, something I've learned from Jesus, I learned that I'd rather break a rule than break a person. I think I mentioned this, but I didn't tell you the texts from which I derived that. Uh And some of my sources for that are the story of the woman left alone with Jesus in John 8, where Jesus, the rules say that she should be stoned. That's literally what it says in Leviticus. Yeah. But he decided not not to stone her. Right, And then also there's the controversy over the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2. Verse 27 is the very famous verse that says, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And the Greek word is, there is anthropos, meaning human, which is why I'm translating it gender neutrally. Mm. So yeah, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Like It's not like we were created in order to benefit a rule or a commandment. No, the commandment and rule was created to benefit us. And if it's implemented and interpreted in such a way that's not beneficial to us, where's the priority? The priority is on us. Like, so now I wanna talk a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus as an act of rule breaking. And you've already talked about this to some extent. And it's an act of rule breaking, yes, in terms of the laws of nature. That's it, true. But I'm not going to talk about yeah. the contravention of the n- laws of nature so much as uh, something else that's even more subversive. And it's this when God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus defied the powers of Pilate, the powers of Rome, and the powers of hell. Yeah. You know, have you, the number one thing cri- critique we get from sort of, people with a simplified understanding of our faith is that, oh, you're being political. Have you ever heard that? Yes, definitely that. Yeah. Um, but And here's the thing is what many people don't realize is that almost everything Jesus said and did had what we would now call political significance. Oh, so How do we know this? Yeah. We can use the reactions of the surrounding people of the time as a periscope to discover the effect that his ministry had on people. All and right. his ministry made people with power so mad they wanted to kill him. That's that's saying something. Yes, sir. He is very much a threat to the power structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't get crucified by the state under the title King of the Jews for teaching nice spiritual truths about the heavens. If that's all <laughs> he did, if he, he just was saying some nice spiritual truths about the other world, he wouldn't have, no one would have bothered with him. Like, Rome's mm-hmm. do, Rome doesn't have time for that. What Jesus did wrong then is that he afflicted the comfortable time and time again. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the the Gospels as a whole, the, car, the core of Jesus' proclamation is that of the kingdom of God. And kingdom might not even be the best word for this because when we think of kingdom, we think of like a geographical area. And the phrase, hey, basileia to theu, the kingdom of God, really talks about the reigning activity of God, the administration, it's the actual governing is the, uh, not the thing that is governed, right? The, but the actual governing is the basileia, the kingdom. Now this term, yeah. the kingdom of God, is 100% political and 100% religious. 
Okay. Many people think that it's one or the other or a little of both, but the religious and political were inseparable in the ancient world, so it's all of both. The Enlightenment and European secular democracies lead us to think of these things as separate categories, but we don't want to colonize the past with these assumptions. Right, right. So, we see that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, you see both of those there, the political and the religious, the kingdom of God was quite threatening. And Jesus' death is what we would now call a political act. Yeah. And thus, so is his resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and I just want to stop, this isn't in my notes, but I just thought of something. Okay. There's this uh, sort of branch of mathematics or maybe economics called game theory, and it talks about how rational decision makers who are on sort of two sides of a – it doesn't have to be like a game like chess. It could be a game like an economic or other political situation how rational people will react to the decisions of other people. And you end up having a decision matrix which says, here are all my choices, here are all your choices, and here's the outcome of all of those possibilities. And a good example of this is the game of chicken, where you have two people racing towards a head-on collision, and each one has two decisions. They can either keep going straight ahead or they can turn to the side and because both players have both decisions there's four possible outcomes right a two by two decision matrix so here are the four outcomes if we both turn aside then we both win uh, we both survive right if one turns aside and the other doesn't then the one who keeps going forward is the one who wins and then one of the cells in the decision matrix is uh, if we both keep going ahead, then we both crash into each other. So those are the all four and only four possible outcomes of this. And so here's something about how to win the game of chicken. It's a little bit risky, but and, and don't try this at home, right? I'm a theologian, so I'm not <laughs> responsible for anything having to do with the real world. So, <laughs> which is ironic, but um, here's how to win the game of chicken. So what you should do is when you're barreling forward towards the other car, you should pull off the steering wheel of your car and hold it up so the other driver can see and then take that steering wheel and throw it out the window. Because once the other person knows that you are all in, you're completely committed and you can't turn back, it changes the decision matrix from four, oper- four possible outcomes to just two. Because now it's just based on their decision. They can either decide to turn aside or not. So for them, their rational best option is to turn aside because if they don't, they will die. Mm. And I think there's something about Jesus going forward towards the crucifixion like he's all in. Like he has pulled off the steering wheel. He has shown that he is committed. He is not going to back down. He is going to go to the death. And I think Mm. that is part of the power that we on the underside of history can hold is we can do the same thing and pull off the steering wheel and show the world where that's what I did um, when I came out right once you okay. come out of the closet you can't undo that right you can't go back in like I could come out tomorrow and say hey guess what I'm straight uh, no one would believe me like my mom won't even believe me <laughs> and that's what that's what she wanted all these years mm-hmm. uh, but you see how once you've come out you've You've, you've totally committed. You can't, you can't go back. And I think we who are people of faith are, um, that's what it's really like to be existentially committed to, to the faith, to be grasped, grasped by it in such a way that it, it takes total ownership of someone. Anyway, so let me just mm-hmm. go back and talk about um, – the reality of the resurrection okay we okay. were talking about how not only is his death a political act but also his resurrection is a political act yes, and sir. it's quite difficult to assess the reality um of this resurrection from a historical standpoint right we can't access the resurrection using the tools of academic historical research indeed the, the truths of faith and the truths of the discipline of history are often on parallel tracks. Uh-huh. Now, scholars like Tom Wright, N- 
he goes by N.T. Wright in uh, his publications. In his book, uh, and he's a very important British New Testament scholar, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he builds a masterful and quite convincing case for the historicity of the resurrection, looking at the impact on the evidence, the documentation that we have, the rise of the early Christian church couldn't have happened without the resurrection. There's just um, a very large, masterful outline. But however, there's a personal investment and involvement that the believer has in the resurrection that goes beyond what the methods of history can access. So to borrow some language from Paul Tillich, who's a German-American theologian, the reality of the resurrection has unconditional validity for those who are grasped by it. Let me say that again. The reality of the resurrection has unconditional validity for those who are grasped by it. And I think for those of us who are believers, it's not so much that we latch on to the faith, but the faith latches on to us. There's something powerful within it that draws us into that story, and we're mm. continued in that story. And we are changed by this story. It provides mm. hope, courage, and power to those of us on the underside of history. Yes, sir. So we talked a little bit about history. Now let's talk about science. There are some people who would use modern science to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. But it doesn't take modern science to know that dead people stayed dead. Everyone in the ancient world knew that dead people stayed dead. The proclamation of the resurrection isn't that, well, time from time to time, dead people will just naturally come alive. That is not what we're proclaiming. The proclamation of the resurrection isn't supposed to be a truth of biology. It's a fervent declaration in the language of faith that the kingdom of God has broken into the world in a particular way. And thus we see that the truth of the resurrection is somewhat independent of both history and science, but in conversation with them both. And get this, oppressed peoples throughout all time have been left out of the history and the science. Mm -hmm. And Jesus' resurrection redeems us all. Yes, sir. Uh, one thought that I did have as you uh, spoke about what the resurrection does for you know those who are on, on the other side is... Um, I was thinking that the politics of the resurrection is found in its gift of freedom to the poor and the helpless. Again, to source the great James Cone, he says something along the lines of how when the poor or the oppressed are being granted freedom while they are still poor, they can know that their, uh, that their poverty is a contrived phenomenon traceable to mm. the rich and powerful in this world. Yeah. This that 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 new knowledge about themselves and the world as disclosed in and through the resurrection, it, it requires something of people. It requires something of people that are you know oppressed. It requires something of people who are not oppressed as well. It requires that we all practice political activity against the social and economic structure that makes people poor, that marginalizes people for their different identities. Not to fight is to deny the freedom of the resurrection. Not to fight is to deny the gift, all the gifts of the resurrection. It's to deny mm. the reality of Christ's presence within us in the struggle to liberate the slaves from bondage. It's to deny just about every promise that the existence of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, is supposed to afford to people that are on the margins of society. So if we are not engaged in active efforts to undo these systems, then we are denying the reality and the gift of the resurrection. I feel like that's another political side of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, that that's that's really amazing. I think the more we think about the resurrection and Easter, the more meaning we can find. Like we can never completely exhaust the significance of this momentous event. So, one of my favorite theologians, her name is Dorothee Zöller. She's a German, uh, or was a German liberation, German feminist liberation theologian, and 
Zilla and Louisa Shotroff wrote this book called Jesus of Nazareth. And I think it's a really helpful guide. I sent I sent you a chapter too late and so you didn't you didn't see it yet, but a chapter from their book on the resurrection. I might actually post this in the uh, this whole chapter in the collaborators group. Okay. But I want to quote this lengthy passage from their chapter on the resurrection. So here's what they said. The resurrection of the dead to eternal life is an expression of the hope that injustice will not prove victorious. This hope says that even if the violence of human beings against one another wins a definitive victory in murder, this victory is only apparently definitive. Thus, in early Christianity, Jesus' resurrection was not interpreted as a unique event as it still is in later Christian dogma. It was important for the people who believed in Jesus that all the dead should rise. They said, He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20 Time and again it has been said by critics of the resurrection faith that all human beings decompose and Jesus decomposed too. That is a criticism of church dogma, which requires Christians to believe in the breaking of the laws of nature and the unique miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. But whether Jesus' tomb was empty after his resurrection, or whether one could have photographed the risen Christ, are not questions which troubled the people who learned to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The Gospels tell many stories about friends, and above all, women friends of Jesus, who went to his tomb in search of the living Christ. The women at the tomb did not have the problems of the European Enlightenment and its criticism of the church. They looked into the tomb because they were sad, indeed desperate, that their hope for the liberation of Israel had once again come to an end through military force. That they found the tomb empty without Jesus in it still meant nothing to them. And this is before the angels, she's talking about before the angels came and actually explained, or before Jesus came and um, appeared to the disciples. Mm. So in the end, we who are members of Christ's church need not fear the truths of history or the truths of science. In fact, we may need to go to history or go to science as Jesus went to the cross. Some things vulnerable to us may have to die in the encounter with history or science, but our faith will rise again. This is the whole point of the chicken analogy earlier about pulling off the steering wheel and saying, you know what, this is where we're going. I am not going to be afraid. I'm, I'm all in, I'm committed. And why? Why is it that we can go to history or science as Jesus went to the cross? Because we have no doctrine but the truth. Let me say that again. We have no doctrine but the truth. And we have no creed other than the facts. We have the most inclusive and generous approach to doctrine possible. All truth is circumscribed into one whole. So any truth is part of our doctrine. Oh, I love this. As uh, someone who likes math, the fundamental theorem of calculus became part of our doctrine the day it was proven. Isn't the restoration hmm. radical? I just think this is amazing. There's there's nothing beyond the reaches of God. Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. position here is based on 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Hey, agape, pante, pistue. Love believes all things. And the word panta, so in Greek, you can change the word order to figure out where you're going to put your em emphasis. So if you take a, a word that's normally the object of the verb and put it in the front, then you have uh, a way of putting it in bold, see? So that's why reading things in Greek, you can actually see where the author's emphasis is. So it's panta, pistue. Love believes all things. This, of course, is reflected in our 13th article of faith. We believe all mm -hmm. things. We hope all things. Actually, I should, I should put the emphasis in a, in a different place. We believe all things. We hope all things. We have endured many things and hope to be able to endure all things. If mm. there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. And this is why the restoration is so gorgeous. It cuts through the creeds and the confessions, the dogma of the sectarian world, and defines our doctrine to be the truth. 
That's our doctrine is the truth. And here's what Dr. Henry Eyring, the scientist, and this is the father of Elder Eyring, the apostle. Uh, and Dr. Eyring was a very famous a chemist, uh, quite renowned. And here's what Dr. Eyring said that he learned from his father. Quote, but in this church, you don't have to believe anything that isn't true. You go over to the University of Arizona and learn everything you can, and whatever is true is a part of the gospel. The Lord is actually running this universe. And Joseph Smith taught the same thing. There are many, many quotes where I could pl proliferate his approach that, that all truth is part of our doctrine. But um, I'll just quote one of them. Here's what Joseph Smith wrote in a letter to Isaac Galland of March 22, 1839 from Liberty Jail. Here's what Joseph said. Mormonism is truth, and every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Consequently, the shackles of superstition, bigotry, ignorance, and priestcraft fall at once from his neck, and his eyes are open to see the truth, and truth greatly prevails over priestcraft. Mormonism is truth. In other words, the doctrine of the Latter-day Saints is truth. The first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is that we believe we have a right to embrace all and every item of truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the creeds or superstitious notions of men or by the dominations of one another when that truth is clearly demonstrated to our minds and we have the highest degree of evidence of the same. And so people will say, well, you're not following our doctrine, you're doing this other thing, <laughs> or um, you're, I'm like, no, I am not afraid. I've pulled off the steering wheel. I joined this church. I'm following the truth wherever it leads. Like if mm. you are not following the truth wherever it leads, A, you're coming from a place of insecurity and B, you're not being a true follower of Jesus who is the way, mm. the truth and the life. You know, yes, he sir. says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I mean, that's how I feel as someone who joined this church. We have nothing to be afraid of looking at the history of our church or the history around the scriptures, the Bible, or the Book of Mormon. We have nothing mm -hmm. to fear from science. Why do we have nothing to fear? It's because the truth, whenever we find out what it is, that was our doctrine all along. That's why yes, we sir. don't have a reason to fear, and that's why we're gonna win the game of chicken against the devil who wants us to turn aside from the path that we were on. And I just wanna close by talking about, I know that my Redeemer lives from a queer perspective. Oh, yes. This is a Let's very go. famous hymn beloved by Latter-day Saints. And just one line in there I want to cover in the second verse. It says, He lives to comfort me when faint. He lives to hear my soul's complaint. Now, some people need to hear that again. He lives <laughs> to hear my soul's complaint. Mm-hmm. Right? Tell them why they he need to hear that, Derek. Yeah, he lives to hear my soul's complaint. This is iambic tetrameter, I think. So we've got um, da dump, da dump, da dump, da dump. Yeah, he lives to hear my soul's complaint. Now people say, "Oh, why are you queers complaining? Just stay here quietly, and and we don't want to see or hear you, and just we don't want to deal with the fact that our complicity." in your oppression makes us uncomfortable. That's what they're saying us when they and don't want to hear our complaint. complaining is of the devil. So Jesus lives to hear my soul's complaint. Like, we're gonna hear my soul's complaint, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus's representatives who testify to the fact that he lives should also be available to hear my soul's complaint. That's mm. what he's all about. He lives to comfort me when faint. He lives to hear my soul's complaint. He lives to silence all my fears. He lives to wipe away my tears. Who's going to wipe away the tears of queer people? That's the whole point of why Jesus lives. And so that's why I have no fear of what it's going to be like to be a queer person in this church. Mm -hmm. Like I am all in. Jesus is on my side. We're going to get this figured out. I, I said I was almost done, but you know that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> all good, brother. Happy to be um, here. Happy to let hear. Me just, let me just say one thing real quick is that I believe that LGBT folk in the church are the check engine light, right? I really think that Christ's church is the vehicle of the salvation of the world, but queer folk in the church are the check engine light of that vehicle.
Mm-hmm. And right now we're, we're blinking, right? And so there's a lot of people, I do this too. I see that check engine light in my actual car. I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I'll just ignore it. And mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people want to do. Like they hear this soul's complaint and they're like, oh, we can just afford to ignore it because it's probably something minor. It only affects a few people in the church, whatever. But the thing is, um, it's best to look. It's best to, to, to take your car to the buff guys with their names on their shirt and have them check it out and tell you. Because, you know, that check engine light, it could be an easy fix or it could be a very hard fix. Like, we don't know. And here's the thing. I'm actually quite humble about my approach to change in the church. I can see there's a problem. I'm not specifying exactly how it will be solved. Like, there could be an easy solution to LGBT folks' inclusion in the church. It could be complicated. Like, we don't know exactly how it's gonna, how the Lord's gonna play it out, right? But I do know that there's a problem, and this cannot, this conversation, this conversation is not going away until we get it right. Hmm. I know what Derek said is true. Not wow. going away until we get it right. <laughs> he he lives to hear my soul's complaint. I mean, that applies to every population in the church. People of color, mm-hmm. disabled folks, mm-hmm. people who are poor, people who are not American, people who are uh, women. Oh, yeah, women in the church. Like, mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. Some, there's, so, there's some voices there that need to be heard. For real. And bless women. Like, uh, I, I still... When I when I read that statistic uh, from Jenna Reese's book about how many active women there are in ratio to active men, and then had to listen to uh, President Iring's remarks at the last general conference, I was like, "Gosh, I do n- like this is not an enviable position to be in." If you know you're a member, if you're a female member of the church who wants to get married, and ultimately you're kind of going to have to put the team on your back in these last days. Like, it's not an enviable position to be in. Like, n- none of these marginalized positions are, but I, I thought about that a lot today as I reconsidered those uh, statistics. As you spoke, I couldn't help but be reaffirmed in knowing that the Lord hearing the soul's complaint is a truth. Like, that is biblical. We, we've seen, we've literally seen apostles stand in the stead of Christ, hear the complaint of the Greek widows, and in response, mm-hmm. they called, you know, seven Greek men to make sure that their needs were ministered to. We know that when people have complaints, for lack of a better word, or, you know, as is said here, that the Lord does hear them and he does minister according to those needs. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the context of the resurrection as we're discussing it today, the the only thing I can say or bear testimony to is the fact that whatever the complaint is, it is ultimately in the economy of Christ and the ultimate destiny of humanity that these complaints be resolved, that these indignities be rectified, that when we seek redress for our marginalization or for our oppression or for our lack of full inclusion into the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, that has Mm -hmm. to be made right. Otherwise, the resurrection is a lie. Otherwise, the gospel is a lie. Otherwise, we we can't be the church. And I've said this many times in many different contexts, we, we can't be the church that we are supposed to be unless those things are rectified. So, Mm-hmm. To, to, to more directly mm-hmm. and more succinctly answer your question, I simply just have a testimony that what you said, what you highlighted is true. The Lord, the Redeemer, does live to hear our soul's complaint because that is a part of his character. That is who he is. That is what the resurrection was all about at the end of the day, was it not? To overcome right. The condition of sin and death, our complaint that we could not get into heaven without being cleansed from, without being freed from the shackles of sin and death. That was the greatest complaint, the worst news. And the gospel is the greatest solution and the best news, the good news. That's what it, that's what it's translated as. So complaint cut off from sin and death, the solution, the good news, the resurrection of Christ, the whole atonement that puts us all in the position where we can all partake of the same blessings in the way that Christ does. That is 
Mm. Another thing that the resurrection does. It, it is a great equalizer. That applies to every group of people. Nobody is going to be withheld from that. Not LGBTQ folks, not women, not trans folks, not mm. people not with Not single color, folks. Not single folks, no. Like, all of us, the ultimate destiny because of the resurrection is to have those complaints of our soul be resolved. Yeah, and it's important to be able to tap into that power and that resilience that despite... Oh, shoot. I wanted to ask about that, Derek. That was a question. I'm sorry. You you finish your thought. I got a question. In order to not have fear, this goes back to this metaphor of pulling off the steering wheel when Satan's barreling toward you, and then Satan's going to have to deflect. Like, how can you tap into that? And, and I think part of looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is how I do it. People say, I don't know how you do it. I'm like... I don't know how I don't do it, right? Like, I am <laughs> drunk on the story of Jesus. Like, we're supposed to not get drunk. Paul said, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm like, that's what I'm doing, is I'm filling myself with this, and this is, has captivated me. It's, it's intoxicated me. I, it's been, it's grasped me, right? And let me tell you the story of another Christian who was grasped by Christ's example, and this is Dirk Willems. He was a Dutch Anabaptist who in the middle of the 1500s was imprisoned for his faith, and he was uh, ended up martyred for his faith. Oops, I spoiled. Spoiler alert! They killed him (laughs) for his faith. And these, these Anabaptists were pacifists. They were completely on the board with nonviolent Nonviolence and, in fact, non-resistance in many ways that they refused to uh, to return violence. They did the whole turn the other cheek thing. Uh-huh. And so here's what happened. So Dirk Willems was imprisoned for his faith, for his faith in Christ. And he somehow escaped from prison during the middle of the winter. There was like a moat around the prison, I think, or maybe a river. And so as he was escaping, he crossed the river on the ice that was uh, mm-hmm. iced over. And someone pursued him. Someone chased him trying to kill him, chased him across the ice. Mm. And so Dirk Willems made it across the ice but apparently his pursuer was a little bit heavier and fell through the ice. Guess look at what, God. Dirk, what? I said, look at God. Oh, no, look at Dirk Willems. Guess what he did? No, he did not. Did he go back? He went back. Did he and, rescue his pursuer? Yes. Oh, my gosh, Dirk. Okay. He went back and saved the life of the person who was trying to kill him because that uh, person cried out for help, right? And okay. Dirk went back and saved him. So this is nonviolence. To the, it's not just nonviolence of like, oh, I can I can run away and I didn't actively kill my pursuer. He's like, no, I have an obligation to save my pursuer, and that's that's Christ, right? That he, is literally Christ putting the ear back on. Yeah, he uh, he saved. He died for the people who killed him. He forgave mm-hmm. the people who killed him. And now this, of course, has been weaponized against marginalized people, right? Saying, oh, you just got to be forgiving, you better, like, whatever. But if you truly understand the radical nature of what Christ did, that's what Dirk Willems, he was all in to the point where he was not afraid of death. So after he rescued his, uh, pers- the person who was pursuing him, he was rearrested, and he, um, his choice to go back for his pursuer cost him his life because they ended up killing him. So that's the type of life I want to live, is someone who's not afraid of death, someone who's so convinced of the resurrection that you can spend your life. And that's what it's like to um, win the game of chicken. Winning the game of chicken. I love that analogy. There's also winning the uh, chicken dance. (laughs) There's a, oh. (laughs) Yeah, um, we could have a chicken dance competition. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, I guess you don't like how white people dance. Um, no comment. I know how I know what our listenership looks like, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that to myself for the time being. Okay. Well, um, that seems like a good place to end it. Uh, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. You can also find us on Facebook. You can also find us on BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. I should also say, surprise, James doesn't know this, but we're changing our name from Beyond the Block to Outer Dorkness. 
Oh my god! <laughs> Absolutely not. No, what? No. Outer darkness. <laughs> I I heard you the first time, Derek. Outer darkness. You like maybe he didn't hear. No, I heard it, Derek. Outer darkness. Oh my god! Outer gosh. darkness. Isn't that fun? That is that is actually pretty good. I okay. I, apl- I applaud you for that. Yeah. Outer well, darkness. Because <laughs> I'm out and I'm a dork. So we should probably say some about. Uh, like Derek and I haven't really discussed this. We haven't decided what we're going to do, if anything, for a general conference this weekend. Maybe we'll have a uh, virtual watch together session like we did last year where we can just kind of mm-hmm. chat about it in real time. That'd be fine. Um, we'll probably say or talk about general conference in the uh, episode afterwards, the weekend following conference. That way we're not trying to double up too much. So uh, we we will balance. Maybe we'll have a nice little balance like we did last year of having a conversation in real time uh, about conference, but also saving some of the moments that hit us hardest for the next episode of the podcast. Uh, but when we finalize what we want to do, we will be sure to let you guys know via social media. So stay tuned for that. Uh, anything else we got to let them let the folks know, Derek? Mm, nope. Then with that, thank you guys for listening till we meet again next week. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>